Well, hi everybody. Welcome to Bible study. We're glad you're here. We're getting started, and I uh, just want to ask God's blessing on our time. Thank you for coming. It's good to see you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your love to us. We thank you for your word to us. Jesus, we invite you to speak tonight. Uh, We welcome you right here in our midst. We've gathered in your name, and we open ourselves to you. We ask you that you would help us, teach us, you would inspire us. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to really uh, help us in understanding and application tonight. Pray you'd open your word to us. We give you thanks. Pray, God, your order, and we pray, God, uh, your revelation, that we be open to receive all that you want to say, all that you want to reveal, all that you want to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. If you need a Bible, I think they already got spread around, but there's one left on the table if you need a Bible. Feel free to help yourself to that. Matthew chapter 7, while you're turning there, just a reminder, if you have or those that are listening on our podcast have any questions uh, like to or comments and you'd like to forward them to us, you can do so through uh, a website called SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E.com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word, and you can leave us a message, it's like leaving a voicemail, and we'd be happy to play that and respond to it the best way we can. So if you'd like to do that, participate that way, please do. We'd love to hear from you and have you interact with us in that fashion. Matthew chapter 7, I need a volunteer to read verse 6. All right, thanks for reading that. Did anybody, this is an open question. Does anybody find this verse weird? Uh, just, I, and I want you to think about it in these terms. I want you to think about what we know about Jesus. I want you to think about what we know about the people that Jesus associated with. I want you to think about what dogs and swine represent in the Bible. And possibly what that which is holy and pearls represent. I just want you to think about all that, put it all together, and does this verse seem weird? It does. I mean, even the Samaritan woman described as a dog, right. in the end, he still helped her out. Like, she didn't get first dibs or anything, but, you know, she still had sympathy on her. Yes, he did, actually. Yeah, and uh, he actually, she, he, he responded to her, he responded to her faith, and he responded to her response to him, and he thought, and so, that's pretty good. Anybody know what story he's talking about? What story is he talking about? Yeah, yeah. Actually, and uh, I don't think it was a, I don't know that it was a Samaritan woman, though. She might have been worse off than the Samaritans, actually. (laughs) 
She was a Gentile woman for sure. Uh, let's see. Why don't we try Matthew 16? I don't know if this is where it is. I have a bunch of verses written down, and one of them is actually that verse. So that's possible. Mm-hmm. It's maybe unlikely, but possible that could be that verse. Because I didn't write down any uh, references, any uh, notes to my references. So, What's that? Is that the are those the verses? Yeah. What does it say? It says, um, the woman came to him and knelt before him, Lord help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said, even the dogs and the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. Okay. So as I suspected there, uh, even worse than, uh, it was a, you said Canaanite? Even worse than the, the Samaritan woman is the Canaanite woman who really has no, not even cousins type relationship with uh, the people of Israel. So kind of interesting that uh, that would be, that you'd point that out. Because she would be considered a, a dog by the people of Jesus' day. So... And yet, there was an interaction that took place there. Now, you brought up, though, a Samaritan woman who the, the Jewish people didn't have really any interactions with. And yet, Jesus had interaction with her at the well when they stopped there. And he was interacting. And his disciples were very surprised that he was interacting with her. Then you think about other people that Jesus interacted with, like lepers, for example. You get lepers that Jesus wasn't afraid to interact with the lepers or even wasn't afraid to touch them which other people were and it really they were unclean so they shouldn't have been touched and yet you see these interactions and you see Jesus participating in these things and what's wrong with the verse we read I'm not blaming you you just read it all right no no I know that's what I'm saying you just read it so what, when I say wrong, I don't mean there's anything wrong. I just say, what, why is it weird? Because it seems the direct opposite of what Jesus is doing. Right. All right. I, and, and I've always had trouble with this. I can give you the, in fact, I could do the whole Bible study explaining to you uh, what the commentaries all say and what we're supposed to believe about this verse. But I don't necessarily really believe that. And so I'm going to go on a little limb with you tonight with this and i want to look at this verse a little bit differently than the way traditionally it's looked at because traditionally uh, what it has us doing is making some type of a judgment some type of a and we could use the word discernment or whatever you want to call it about the people that we happen to be sharing our lives with the people that we're sharing the gospel with and the people that we're sharing whatever you want to believe at the pearl in the in, from Jesus' teaching, the pearl uh, was it was an, it was used as a symbol of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But something of real value. But we should be discerning of that and only share it with certain people, but not others. I don't know if you caught that in that verse. That's a traditional way that people look at it. I'm not sure that I even understand that in the context of the gospel. In this sense, as we go down through it and as we look at it, I think there's a different way to see it. 
And uh, the, the first thing he talks about, he talks about, he says, don't give that which is holy to dogs. And that word holy points to the sacrifice that was made. In other words, as people would be hearing this in an Old Testament kind of concept and, and hearing this in, in a way that, that they could understand it, they would equate that or they would relate it, maybe not equate it, but at least relate it to the idea of the Old Testament sacrifice. Now, what happened with the Old Testament sacrifice? Well, who could touch the Old Testament sacrifice? It was the high priest. And the priesthood, they had special permission to handle and to take care of the sacrifice. Certainly, the sacrifice that was made would never, ever, ever be thrown to dogs. Never. That was not going to happen. And so the idea behind this was a ridiculous idea. In other words, think of the most ridiculously profane thing that you could possibly think of, where... You have this sacrifice that's being made, and as the sacrifice is being made, or after the sacrifice, or however, whatever time frame you want to put it in, is being made, the high priest then takes the sacrifice and just throws it out to the dogs. That's unacceptable, completely, to the people that he's talking to. But Jesus, many times, said unacceptable things. To the people that they they would hear something that he said, and I went over this uh, when I was talking about the the after the feeding of the four or five thousand last Monday. We we're talking about how he went across the lake. The people followed him around the, the lake. They found him, and he recognized that their motives weren't so good. And he said something to them that completely drove them off. He was able to drive off thousands of people by just saying, well, he said, if you want any part of me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You remember we were talking about this? Universally. <laughs> it is the universally offensive thing to every person that was standing there. And, and there, there's a whole, a whole bunch of things that could have been said that would have been offensive to some people, but maybe not offensive to other people. Or maybe it would have offended a certain group, but wouldn't have offended another group. But he chose something that was utterly, utterly, universally offensive to every person as they understood it, and they all walked away. Thousands of people. Thousands. And there are other examples in the scripture where Jesus really pressed things forward. And, and, of course, we know when he said that to them, he, and he told his disciples, and he even said this, as he was saying, these words are spirit. I mean, he, he tried to explain it. And as he spoke to the disciples, he went forward with that idea. But there are other times where things were said. That people just did not understand. And so as he says this to them and he speaks these words where you would take the, the most holiest of sacrifices to these people, to the deeply religious, they would understood what he said or what he was pointing to here and throw that to the dust. That would be very offensive, very profane, terrible thing to them. And yet Jesus... It's little chance that he's going to be soiled. 
Because ultimately, isn't he the sacrifice? And so this idea of the Old Testament sacrifice was completely and utterly fulfilled through him. That whatever needed to be sacrificed, whatever needed to be given, whatever needed to happen, took place through Jesus. And in a real sense, when we talk about that which is holy, what it's pointing to in this verse, it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to who he is, and it's pointing to what he's done. I mean, he's saying it. And so these things are pointing back to him. And in the, in the illustration, take that which is holy and throw it to the dogs. Well, if dogs represent the Gentiles, wasn't Jesus taken to the Gentiles? Didn't Jesus go to, I mean, through the Apostle Paul specifically? First through the Apostle Peter as he went to the house of Cornelius, but then through the Apostle Paul who took the, the gospel throughout the Roman Empire to the Gentiles. And understanding that this idea that that which is holy should never be thrown to the dogs was broken by Jesus himself. And so if we were going to take it literally and we were going to actually just take it for that which it says right on the very surface, we could pretend to be Old Testament people understanding the Old Testament sacrifice and we could be duly offended by what he just said. But the fact of the matter is, is that in this scenario, we're not Old Testament people. We're not overly religious people. We don't live under the same sacrificial system. And in this illustration, we're the dogs. If you're following along what I'm saying. So, I got some problems here in the sense of the way that the verse is being interpreted. That's what I'm trying to say. And so let's look at this a little bit. Jesus went and he touched people. All right, Whether you want to talk about the people he shouldn't have been talking to, the people he shouldn't have been ministering to, the people that the rest of society ignored, the people that other people that had nothing to do with. You could talk about the Gentile woman, talk about the Samaritan woman. All of these people, that just, even the little children, even the little children that everybody ignored, that when the little children came to him, his disciples tried to shoo them off because it was inappropriate for them to be talking to him. Jesus said, no, let the little children come unto me. In, in these scenarios of, of the people that society looked at and they said, they're rejects. They are untouchables. They are the ones that nobody wants anything to do with them. Don't talk to them. Don't go near them. Don't have anything to do with them. These people are a nuisance. Get rid of them. These people shouldn't be here. They should go. These men over here should not be yelling for Jesus. Quiet them down. This woman should not have come up behind Jesus and touched his garment. Tell her to get away from him. All of these stories are people that shouldn't be there. That if they were following the old rules and Jesus was following all these rules that, that existed at that time in society and all these things that, that people accepted as being, well, this is just the way it is. If he was following that, then none of these things that I just said would have taken place. Yet they did. And it wasn't just one thing, it was one thing after another. Let's look at a few verses. Second uh, Peter 3.9, kind of a familiar verse. Second Peter 
All right, we understand slowness. And, and because we understand that, we understand that Jesus does what he says. Right, that's what the verse says there. But at the end of that verse, it says that he wills that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Except for who? Dogs and pigs? And, and the reason I brought up this verse is it, it speaks to a way of seeing things. It speaks to a way of seeing our world. It, it speaks to a way to see the people around us. Who around us is completely without hope in our eyes? The answer should be no one. No one. Because Jesus wills it all. All should come to repentance that none should perish. And if I know that's how he feels about it, then even the most vile of the vile, it seems to me, falls within his will. A number of years ago, and and I just thought of this because the other day I saw something on television. They were doing an interview with the guy that was the son of Sam. Uh, And you guys are probably way too young to remember this, but... There was a maniac, you might have seen the movie, uh, there was a maniac running around New York City with a 44 uh, caliber snub nose and would walk up on cars of uh, kids making out or whatever in their cars and he'd just kill them. And it was just a spree of killings that was taking place and, and New York City was terrorized by this guy. And so they finally caught him, and he was known as the son of Sam Killer. He was a serial killer. And so they finally caught him, and he was convicted. And during the trial, all this weird stuff came out about him and dogs talking to him or whatever. I mean, it was just weird, weird, weird. And he was put away into prison. Now, that's a pretty vile person, right? He killed a bunch of people. Cold blood. Just walked up and killed him. And he literally terrorized just a major city. One summer. Terrorized. So I saw I saw they were interviewing him on television, so I thought about this. I was in a church in Reedburn, New York. Uh, a long time ago I used to travel to churches and I would raise money. Uh, when I traveled to churches, I'd preach at the church, do some ministry. And then they'd decide if they want to support me or not. And so if they wanted to support me, they would agree. They'd, they'd fill out a card or something. And they would send in support every month when they had it, whether it was 10 bucks a month or 15 bucks a month or 25 bucks a month or 50 100 whatever it was. They, they, they'd support me. And I'd been going to this church for a number of years. Uh, this, this church in the middle of nowhere. It's in the Catskills. Uh, not in the rich part of the Catskills, in really poor part of the Catskills. And uh, it's just really in the middle of nowhere. And I had been consistently going to this church over a period of years. When I first started going there, there were 18 people in the church. And I remember I was there one night. This was probably the last time, one of the last times I was there. And there were probably 50 or 60 people in the church that Sunday night. And I got through. We ministered and everything. And this guy walked up to me, a pretty big guy. He walked up to me. He's like, I want to tell you something. I'm like, what? He's like, you'd... Uh, given a word over me a couple years ago. I, I don't remember the whole story, but he told me I'd given a word over him and that he was a prison guard in uh, the 
state prison that was located wherever it is down there uh, near uh, Roscoe or wherever they are. And he said now as part of his job, he has contact with this man who, and I can't think of his name, who's the son of Sam Killer. He was in that prison. He said, so I have regular contact with him. And he said, uh, he said that, that he had come to know Jesus at some point along the line and that he was a regular, one of the regulars at the Bible study that was going on in the prison, uh, that the guards and some of the inmates would have a Bible study and all this stuff. And it reminds me all the time when I hear that, that who is, and, and I think the guy not only had some background in the occult, but he was born and raised Jewish. All right? So he had all of this stuff kind of mixed together, and yet he became a Christian. He came to know Jesus. And it reminds me, and it makes me think, like, who is beyond the reach of the grace of God? I mean, seriously. You can think about it. I mean, you can try to, you know, it's like, well, what about, and you can think of all the vile people that are out there. I mean, there are a lot of vile people out there, but who is beyond that? And, and so I, I, was, I wanted to try to listen to that interview because I don't even know if the guy is still serving God or what he's doing. He's going to be in prison his whole life. He's, not, he's never going to get out. But it, it's just interesting to me is that how, how do we make a judgment that even God doesn't make? So, so I, wanted to, I want to encourage us that maybe there's something deeper here. Somebody else uh, look up Matthew 8, 2 and 3. This is what I was talking about earlier. I just feel we read it. So I'm not just rambling it out. Matthew 8, 2 and 3. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was See, there's Jesus touching a leper. You know? Wow. Okay. I just wanted to I just wanted to read that because I know I said that as we were kind of going through it, but it's interesting to me he's just touching a leper. There he is. And we read that he he uh, healed the Gentile woman's daughter and they had a little interaction there. You know the woman at the well, I think. And that story it's just as you read through and you see Jesus interacting with these people, it, I think this verse that, that we're seeing here, it speaks to something deeper in us. And I, do, I, I really do think this verse speaks to us. I think it speaks to me specifically, but it speaks to something a little bit deeper in us. Now, as I said before, dogs are unclean. They were considered unclean by the people of that day. Now, I know we love dogs, and they live in our houses, and we sleep with them, and we eat with them and stuff, but they would never do that. That's not what dogs, no. Dogs were really nasty, and they were considered really super unclean to these people. And so were swine. They were also considered unclean uh, to these people. 
And so they, they had some real issues with either type of animal and all that they represent. And I think that a dog is kind of an interesting animal because it, dogs have been domesticated for a really long time. And if you look in certain cultures, dogs have been a part of households. Dogs have been a part of everyday people's lives in certain cultures and in their homes and part of their family life and all that for a long, long, long time. The breed of dog I have is it's a Japanese breed of dog. It's over, I believe, sort of neighborhood of, I don't know, 4,000 years old. It's been domesticated. Not my dog. My dog's over two, I think, but uh, the breed itself, and there's other breeds that are older and been around longer. So it depends on what culture you're in, but in this particular culture and for what that would represent, uh, it's uh, it's interesting to me. Dogs were in the house, even in this culture. I mean, when when Jesus, when the woman said, "Jesus, well, can't the dogs eat the?" This, the crumbs that fall off the table? Well, yeah. Well, they couldn't eat the crumbs if they weren't in the house somehow, right? So they fell off the table. They were they were there. Pigs were more outside. And they were... I think pigs sometimes have a bad reputation. Uh, they're not... I mean, they're dirty animals. Uh, dogs are dirty animal. Filthy. Filthy animals. Well, they have to be really charming. Yeah. See, dogs are charming. Pigs aren't. That's why pigs get, they're, they're worse off than dogs because they're not charming at all. Pigs are good to eat. <laughs> that pig on Green Acres was pretty charming. Remember him, Arnold? He was charming, yeah. But other than him, I mean, you don't see a lot of charming pigs, so maybe Porky. Uh, he's cartoon, but... Other than that, I mean, pigs really don't get off very well as far as being popular or or anything. And so it's easier for us to understand that pigs are filthy animals and we can accept that. Dogs, on the other hand, are cute and they have some personality. So we don't like to think of them as filthy, but they are filthy animals. Yes. You are jumping in with both feet right there, okay? You are right on the the path to where I'm heading. Right, right, okay? Correct. We like the, you know, like, like whatever we consider cute or we, can, we think is nice or whatever, that's one kind of filthy. And then there's the other kind of filthy that just not charming at all. We don't like it. We don't want anything to do with it. And it is uh, offensive to some of our senses. Unless it's sitting in the grocery store and we can cook it up. 
but not the actual pig itself. Yeah, go ahead. Well, who are the uh, who's hopeless in that verse in Ecclesiastes? Dead. Dead. Okay. (laughs) All right. So the dog's alive. There's hope. Yeah, I remember. I I actually preached that on a Sunday at Rockefeller United Methodist Church. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just repeated it then. I was lazy that night or something. But originally, that was at uh, the church over there. We were first coming off uh, university, and uh, I think it was probably during the summertime or something. But uh, that verse always sticks with me. There's a couple of verses in Ecclesiastes that always stick with me. That's one of them. And, and I always think that I'd rather be a live dog than a dead lion. And uh, what was that verse again? I'll s- Ecclesiastes 9.4. For those of you playing at home. But... That that verse sticks with me a lot. Uh, it sticks with me about, and, and this is bringing me more, even closer toward where I'm trying to go with this. That that speaks to me about who I am. Not who I want to be. Not who I kind of see myself as. But the reality of my life. And that live dog that I am has hope. And is going to have hope as long as I'm a live dog. And it's not glamorous. It's not desirable even, according to whoever standards we're going by. Much better to be a lion, king of the jungle, man. Everybody goes to the zoo. They go see the dogs. Not usually. They go see the lions. All right? That's what they do. want to see the lions. Even though lions hardly ever do anything, they're usually just laying around on a rock doing nothing. Maybe grooming each other. Yeah, so, I mean, so you got the lions. Great to be a lion. But when they roar, man, that's really exciting. It really is. I mean, I, right. But I, I'm, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's take this another step. Let's look at it another step here. What, when we look at ourselves, what do you see? Because let's say the pearl represents the kingdom. Let's say the, that that which is holy represents Jesus. His sacrifice and who he is. I want you to think about how you, how you see that, how you see yourself even in that. Because sometimes... I. I really believe, and I believe this a long time. I had a, a mentor who was pastor of a church, and, and I didn't agree with him at first when he started talking to me about this, but we were talking about how people see themselves. This is a conversation that came up because we were talking about having people sign. I, I found this really old 
pamphlet in the church that we were at. And on the pamphlet, it was, uh, I want to become a member of your church. And there was a list of stuff that you could and you couldn't do on a pamphlet. And so at the end of the list, if I agree not to do this stuff, then, and you signed it, and that was your covenant you're making with the church, that you're going to live whatever that defined as a holy life. Like, I don't frequent movie theaters. It was an old, old pamphlet, but it was just all these things. And I asked him one day, we're at our meeting, kind of our weekly meeting, and I'm like, so, so Pastor, why, why don't we use this pamphlet anymore? You know, these days, we just people just say they want to be a member or something, and we just make them a member. I mean, there's no standard. Why don't we use this? And, and he assured me of something that day, which I said I didn't believe him, but I came to believe him after a little while. He assured me of this, that most of the people that you will ever meet think so lowly of themselves, so poorly of themselves, that we will need to spend our energy building them up long before there's ever any need to tear anybody down. So don't worry about that. You need to be an encourager. See, in my world, people would just do what they want, so we've got to tell them you can't do that, at least back then. That they just, they, they're just going to do it, you know, so all these other things. That he's like, no, they already feel bad. They already feel terrible about who they are. You need to tell them about a Savior, and you need to tell them about grace, and you need to tell them about mercy. And eventually, I believed that guy. I didn't right then. And it took me a little while to get to that point, but I started looking at things a little bit differently as I worked with people, as I worked with a lot of kids. I was running a youth group back then, still running a youth group, but was running a youth group back then. And, and so I was doing that, and then I started working with college, university students, and I was working with all these different groups. And I started noticing in people what, exactly what he was saying. People feel so terribly about themselves, their failures, their shortcomings, their inability to live up to whatever the standard they have placed for themselves, and all of these different things that that makes them almost completely ineffective for work in the kingdom. Almost. That just can't believe God will use them. They just can't believe God wants to use them. Can't believe God even cares. Seriously. Tough place to be. And so if we're going to be effective in what God calls, calls us to do, it, we, we have to be people who build people up. We have to be a, be, be a people that introduce people to the grace of God, the mercy of God, and who he is. So I look at this verse, and it's like you've got the sacrifice of Jesus, you've got the kingdom of God. Those are two huge concepts that are throughout the whole Old and New Testaments. The whole Bible talks about that. Maybe not in those words, but all points to it, all looking forward to it, all speaking toward it, all saying this is the way it's going to be. When? Well, then, Jesus. And so we have this sacrifice. We have this all-encompassing, I'm given everything that I am, everything that I have, everything for you guys. That's what Jesus did. Greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. And we are the recipients of that. That happened. That happened. Thankfully. His reign and rule, the idea of the kingdom, 
And we've gone over this a lot of times, so I'm not going to rehash it. But that rain, that actual, literal reign and rule of God in us, in us, is that kingdom. You think about where did Jesus describe the kingdom? Going all the way back to that, Luke 17.21. Luke 17.21. They'll come to me, they're going to say, they'll, they'll come to you, they'll say, where's this kingdom? Jesus is telling his disciples, he's like, well, where's the kingdom? Look for it over here, didn't find it. Look for it over there, didn't find it. He's like, the kingdom of God isn't something that you weigh out. It's not something that you're going to be able to stick a marker on or build a fence around or anything else. What did he say? Luke 17, 21. Where's the kingdom? Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or in you. It's in you. Thank you. It's a hard to pronounce word. It's all right. You did a fine job, though. <laughs> literally, 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 it's in you. And I mean that according to what literally it says. It's in you. In you. So if the kingdom is in you, then the pearl of great price is where? In you. So the pearls that we understand this to represent are in you. Jesus is in you, in me. The sacrifice, the life that he gives, the laying down of his life is in us. And so let's go from that premise of it being in us. Well, what does God have to say to you? What does God have to say to you about forgiveness tonight? What's he talking to you about? He's talking to you about he, what has he done? Everything that's necessary. What can be forgiven? Everything that you've ever done can be forgiven. It can be. You're going to live in that? You're going to walk in that? You're going to allow that? I, I hope you do. What could stop that? Well, if you feel unworthy. What could stop that? Well, maybe you just don't believe it. What else could stop that? Maybe somebody told you that there were certain sins. You know what? When I open up, and I, this, is, this is something I'm just going to say, I, and I've done this on campuses, I've done this in churches, where I just open up and I say, you got any question you can ask, and I'll try to answer it. I'll just open up question and answer. One question comes up more than any other question. And there's the question. You ready? What's the unforgivable sin? comes up all the time. Because people are genuinely worried about it. Because there's something inside of them that is telling them you've done something that can't be forgiven. And they really believe that. And so there's this excuse, there's this thing that's going on inside of them. Not worthy, not worthy, not worthy. It, it, the sin that can't be forgiven, not forgiven. No, no, it is, it is missing the, the very point of what Jesus came to do. is to set you free. Yeah. So with that mentality, what exactly does that do to a relationship? You tell me. Well, you tell me, what does that do to any relationship? If you got one person saying, I love you, and I'll do anything for you, and you got the other person saying, I am the scum of the earth, and completely unworthy of anything that you could ever pour out into my life, because I am the worst possible human being, how far is that relationship going to go? Well, if it's a human relationship, not far, but God doesn't give up, 
Absolutely. But we, in other words, and this is and this is what I think I hear. In other words, what begins to happen is we have to change over time. God just keeps loving us. The sacrifice was made for for us two thousand years ago, and He's been loving us ever since. And so, for as long as we have any idea, any consciousness whatsoever, we're being loved. We're being loved from the very beginning until this moment right now. We're being loved. God is loving us, loving us, loving us. Whether we're aware of it, we're not aware of it. We see it, we don't see it. We feel it, we don't feel it. It's obvious, it's not obvious. He's loving us. And he keeps loving us. And he keeps pouring out mercy. And he keeps pouring out grace. And he keeps pouring out into our lives. Loving us, loving us, loving us. Why do we hold on to those insecurities? Why do we hold on to that self-hate? Why do we hold on to that unwillingness to be forgiven and to be loved? Why are we holding on to that? Why? Control. Control? Why else? Fear. Fear. Why do you have a dog in the house? Why do you have a dog in the house? Huh? Yeah, sometimes. But think about why you have a dog in the house. Companionship. What else? Could be. Huh? Anybody else? We seem to have, or we think we have, some need. And we find that that dog is a convenient way to meet that need. Could you protect yourself a different way? Yeah. Could you find companionship a different way? Sure. Could you, do, could you find, in, in a different way, some other way to meet whatever that dog is doing in your house? Yeah. But what's the advantage of a dog? yeah we don't need to do anything right the dog all you gotta do with a dog is feed a dog take him out every now and then you know kind of take care of him whatever but it doesn't require you to do much of anything to yourself you follow me it's not like a person it's not like a child. It's not like another human being. See, dogs are convenient in a sense. I know they're really inconvenient in other sense. I've had dogs since I was a kid, so I understand how dogs work. And But they're a convenience. And I just want you to hear the way I mean this. They're a convenience in that they're easy. They're easy. And they don't require us to actually change. You just do what we need to do to take care of them. And they will love us no matter what. So the whole psychology of the thing is, you know, um, if someone comes to you and they have this love, then there's some sense of, well, if I accept this love and I walk into this, then, the, then what's it going to require of me? What responsibility is there that I have? So I think a lot of people, like you said, they don't want to 
that's a good MSW talk on that one. Uh, yeah, and, and I would think, too, I'd add to that uh, when you were talking about just then, what I would add to that is that I think there's also in us uh, really something deep-seated in that we're always earning something. And we always feel like we have to pay people back. We have to pay them back. We have to earn it. We have to somehow uh, make ourselves worthy. And it's not even, that's not even what I want to say. It's just almost a, a, a payback and, and not being beholden to. And I know uh, I was brought up that way. That's pretty much drilled into my head. Like, don't, don't owe anybody anything. Well... God's a huge exception to that, um, and you'll find that there will be people in your life that are going to be huge exceptions to that, too, because we really need each other. Right, could you could you substitute forgiveness in that? Yeah. Or any other God-given, grace-given thing that we receive from God, right? You can forgive somebody else because between them and what if they don't forgive you? And what if they don't receive that? You come, your forgiveness comes to them. Right. Yeah, and, and there you could say that, that with any God-given, grace-given thing. And, and I'll take that a step further... In that, uh, in uh, I think it's First John, where he's teaching, he said, "You say you love your bro- you say you love God, but you hate your brother. You're lying. You're lying." And and okay, so substitute that with whatever it is you want to substitute in that. That our relationship with God is fleshed out with the people around us. We don't say we love God and hate our brother. That's a lie. I mean, we do, but that's a lie. <laughs> you know, and, and it, it is a lie. And, and there's, there's all kinds of things that are grace-given into our lives that we're responding to with God, but the ultimate manifestation of that, the reality of it, the truth of it, is our relationships with each other. So so the idea of throwing the flesh, well, what is that really saying? Well, what's that's really saying is that Jesus has given himself to us. And we can continue to reject that with whatever it is we're using as our excuse. And, and again, I'm not beating anybody up here. I, I want to encourage you, and I want you to, to really consider the fact that God loves you, and he forgives you no matter what. And, and so I, I can honestly say that really most of the people that have ever asked me that question in life, what's the one sin, is there anything that God won't forgive? They don't need to worry about that. 
they're okay. I've never really run into people that really need to worry about that too much. Because God wills it that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Okay, the second part of it is the pigs. Now, you think about the pigs and and the whole idea of the pearls. And this is an idea I want to leave you with as we end up tonight. But he said you don't throw pearls to swine because they trample them under their feet. Well, why are they trampling them under their feet? Because they want to eat them. They're looking for food. And so basically what he's saying there is you throw in these pearls. Now understand that in, in this culture, because of the fashion of the day or for whatever reason, pearls were the most precious of stone, the most precious of jewels. And so he's saying you're taking the most precious of jewels, you're throwing them at pigs. Pigs don't care that they're pearls. They don't know what they are. They don't recognize them for what they are. They just start trampling them on trying to get them so they can eat them. But pearls aren't good to eat. And so the, the, the pigs get upset because they're trying to eat these pearls and they're trampling on them. And no matter how much they try to trample on them, they still can't eat them because they're not good to eat. And they get all mad about it. The problem isn't with the pearls. The problem's with the pig. Because the pig has made a decision that this is, and, and I know they're not rational, so follow along with me here. But they, they, they look at that and they want to eat it. That's all they can think of. I'm going to eat that. Oh, that looks good. And so they, they start, they try to eat it. They can't, it gets, it gets all frustrated, it gets all mad. Because it isn't what they want it to be. And they're pigs. So they get mad about it. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about pearls. Missing the pearls because you were looking for the slop. All right? And how frustrating that is. When in reality, you've been handed riches. You're frustrated because you don't have slop. Okay? And this is the idea I want to leave you with, is that how often does God want to bless us? How often does God want to just pour into our life? And it may not be what we think we need right then. I'm serious. We might think we need. Oh, easy for you to say, i got to pay my rent. Yeah. Okay. You still don't want to miss what he's giving you right now. Oh, easy for you to say, i got to put food on the table. I understand that, but you don't want to miss what he has for you right now. There's something deeper. There's something more powerful to this. There's something that is more important. I know not to you and your brain right this second, but more important in the big scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things, there's something more important going on right now that you need to discern and you need to see and receive instead of just trampling it underfoot and getting mad and getting angry. And I see people do it. I see myself do it. 
God didn't do what I wanted him to do when I, when I asked him. So he's a jerk. Really? Yeah, I mean, you talk to people that are angry with God. You know, who are they? Most of the people that you meet, oh, I don't believe in God. Well, why not? Well, he didn't do what I told him to do that one time. All right. That happens. That happens. I mean, you are speaking to the God of the universe who knows the beginning from the end and is all-powerful, and he does whatever he wants to do. You're right. And so he didn't jump when you told him to jump. He didn't say, oh, hi. And so now you're mad at him. He can't possibly exist if he doesn't do what you tell him to do right when you tell him to do it. That's impossible, right? Been really busy yeah, else. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know that's not even the case. He just he knows your heart and your desires. Right. But I think a lot of times God does something that doesn't stop, right? We're like, I wanted that job or that school or that relationship or whatever, and he's like, I oh, know you don't actually want that, so I'm not going to give it to you. And I've been in situations like that, like that where I've prayed every single week in church for the same thing and the sermon every week for a month. <laughs> I mean, he's giving something. And I'm hoping that as we grow in that, and that happens to us a few times, we can at some point really begin to see it more clearly right in the moment instead of after the fact, after being angry or letting bitter, letting a, a root of bitterness begin to rise up in us. We really see it more in the moment and, and be able to make, have a better reaction to that. Because ultimately, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is in us. And we think we want that reign and that rule. Well, as we come into that reign and that rule in reality, the momentary things that we think, well, I need this now. I think we're more able to set aside and say, God, I know you know my needs. I love you. You love me. Thank you. And to me, that's accepting a reign and rule in reality in, in the midst of our, our true and, and very real situations that we find ourselves in. Those moments that we live in. So I think with the two, the, to me, two of the big themes of his forgiveness, his grace, and his love for us and his reign and rule in and through our lives. It speaks to us about where sticking points are in our hearts and in our lives to realizing both those things. And to me, that's what this is talking about. That's what it's speaking to me about. Anybody have any questions or comments? I just had a comment. I was seeing a, a vision like when 
we were talking about the kingdom of God being in us mm -hmm. and the pearls that are in us and thinking about the vial of the vial and like I don't know I've seen this vision of the pearls inside people that I think are vile like I was just picturing all sorts of people I think are vile and picturing pearls that are covered in like the slime and the sand and the bleh. like how do you actually find a, a literal pearl it's like you have to get through the bleh. like if you're gonna actually touch one and get to one you have to get through the the water and the sand and, bleh, bleh. and even the process of jewelry is like they really have to grind things down to make them prettier or whatever and i was just thinking about the vial of what a cool pearl it could produce if we're willing to just go freaking pray for somebody or just encourage somebody or encourage our, like the pearls within us that we're like oh man why would God want to touch that part of my life or wherever I'm beating myself up I was like man I was just picturing like all these gems and I think I err on the side of Rebecca and I have hope for like all sorts of people <laughs> and I was just seeing these like gems like inside people that were really that process was like kind of swimming through that. Anyway. Yeah. It was kind of an interesting visual mm -hmm. in my head. Yeah. Hopefully. It makes me think, you know, what does God see in us? Like, what do you see in Peter? What do you see in Andrew? What do you see in James and John, the sons of thunder? I mean, what do you see in them? Yeah, and pigs aren't charming at all. So, yeah. Ultimately, we're all in this together. Uh, the whole the whole notion of drawing a class and subclass is done. This is done, and I think the New Testament's clear about that. It's it's done on the basis of uh, gender. It's done on the basis of nationality. It's done on, on the basis of religious background. That all those lines that were so heavy, heavy, heavy in their society, they're just done. And they need to be done with us, too. Let's pray.
Father, thanks for your love again. We started in your love, and we continue in your love. And I pray that your love would just be poured out on us tonight. And I ask you that as we consider who you are, you've loved us, and you continue to love us, and you're going to love us. We thank you for the sacrifice that you've made and what that means to us in mercy and what that means to us in grace and what that means to us in forgiveness and in living in your presence and living in relationship with you. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you are in us, you are with us, you like us, you want the best for us. Thank you, God, for the life that you you pour out for us. And, God, tonight I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for your reign and your rule, that literal reign and rule. And I thank you for all that that means in healing and in uh, gifts of miracles and and, in discerning of spirits and in tongues and interpretation of tongues and and in uh, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge and in gifts of healings and seeing people made whole. God, I thank you that there is a manifestation of your kingdom in us. And I pray that we will, instead of trampling on that which you have for us and that which you give us, embrace the beauty, embrace the precious stones, the jewel that God you offer. We stop fighting with you. And we let you rule and we let you reign in our lives. God, I ask that this would affect not only how we see ourselves, but how we see the people around us and the people that you bring our way, the people that are already in our lives and those that we're yet to meet. We'd be a people of love, a people of grace, and a people of mercy, people of forgiveness, because you've loved us and you've forgiven us and you have poured out your mercy on us already. I pray that we would live that out into the lives that we are around and that we see every single day. Thanks, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. 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 Amen.